you are listening to AI Ready Healthcare. I am Anirban Mukhopadhyay, your host from Tiu Darmstadt, Germany. The purpose of AI Ready Healthcare is to connect the advanced technological knowledge of Mekai society to different stakeholders such as clinicians, industry personnel, regulatory personnel to name a few. You can expect deep meaningful conversations about bringing AI into the real clinical routine. Opinion belongs to whoever said it. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together let's make healthcare AI ready. In this episode of AI Ready Healthcare, Professor Joseph Kevider explained the history and the journey so far of digital health and how it intersects closely to his wonderful career as a physician scientist but also as the editor in chief of Nature Digital Health. So, welcome to the sixth season of Already Healthcare. It's a rather cloudy day here in Darmstadt, Germany, uh, with a bit of a sun in between. I'm your host, Anirban, together with my co-host, Henry. We are really looking forward to an engaging conversation with Professor Joseph Kevider. So, Professor Kevider is the expert in terms of telehealth and digital health. He is leveraging information technologies such as cell phones, computers, network devices, and remote health monitoring tools to really improve the care delivery. He is a professor of dermatology at Harvard Medical School and vice president of Partners Healthcare. As if that's not enough, he is also the editor-in-chief of NPJ Digital Medicine. So we are really looking forward to hear his thoughts on the role of AI in digital health as the digital health is going through this transitional phase. But first of all, welcome to the podcast, Professor Kevida. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to uh, spend some time with you and, and uh, looking forward to the conversation. Hello and welcome also from my side. I'm Henry. I'm today's co-host uh, for today's session. Yeah, it's a great pleasure to have you here today. and. I want to start with the very first question, which is a reoccurring question uh, for our AI Ready Healthcare podcast, which is about the becoming of you as a person and as a researcher. So can you tell us a bit about yeah, your path uh, to being a vice president of Partners Healthcare and uh, a professor of dermatology at Harvard Med School? Well, I'll try to do it in, in, a, in a succinct way. It was a circuitous route. I, I grew up in a small town in the state north of where I am now, Vermont. And I thought from a young age, I wanted to be a doctor. That part is was clear for reasons I still don't know, but I, but I had that clarity. I thought I was going to be uh, just a country doc take, taking care of patients in a small town like my hometown. That didn't turn out to be what happened. I went to medical school took an internship in Boston. That's how I wound up in Boston. And then a residency in dermatology at, at the Harvard Medical School combined program. And I started out 
in uh, actually in basic science studying uh, skin cell differentiation. But about five years into that, took a bit of a pivot and um, had a, a number of things I was doing at the time to sort of try to rediscover my career. And the one that came into sharp focus was telemedicine. The link was uh, that at the time I was looking at uh, what was a new technology, digital imaging, as applied to dermatology and, and the idea that it was pretty leading edge thinking that we could acquire enough information where the patient was separate from where the dermatologist was so that you could actually do something. And that just intrigued me. And when, when I was in the middle of studying that and verifying, and that's probably the link back to science as well, it really just occurred to me that this was a pretty big deal. Now, I was of the mind at that time in my in my life, and I think this is an interesting admission of insecurity, but I was of the mind that if I was to figure something out, I must be among the last people on the planet to figure it out. So I thought we better hurry up and catch up. Of course, we were about three decades ahead of our in our thinking, but I didn't know that at the time. So that led to the formation of a team at the Mass General Hospital. We are our first projects, other than those research projects, our first service project was providing online second opinions around the world. That grew into a service that still exists. And then in the mid-90s, late 90s, we started thinking about a concept that I still feel passionate about called one-to-many care, the idea that you could use a technology like, say, remote patient monitoring to care for a large population of patients with fewer clinicians than the sort of one-on-one -on -one way that we often provide healthcare. And so we started working in remote patient monitoring. Again, that became a service. And then for the next 20 years or so, it was this mix of innovation, working with startups, working with established companies to, to, to validate new technologies and those services. In 2020, I took another pivot and uh, actually left that post. So now I still see, I've, the whole time I've seen patients, I still see patients two days a week. But now I spend my time, as you mentioned, I'm on uh, the editor-in-chief at the journal Nature Digital Medicine. The American Medical Association has a group that advises them on physician payment. I co-chair that group. I just rotated off as the chair of the board at the American Telemedicine Association. And I do some consulting, sit on some boards. So it sounds busy. It's actually not as busy as when I had an executive role. So I feel like I'm in a good place and have a really fun portfolio of, of activities. Yeah, that's really wonderful. I guess three decades of uh, research in telehealth and especially, I guess, three decades ago. I, of course, I can't remember. It was I was probably <laughs> way too young or didn't even born. <laughs> but I can imagine that the infrastructure, the networks, nothing was really there to have such a vision. Right, and right. People probably, like, even if there was, the society was not even ready to think such a thing is possible. There were many mental blockages. That's right. And then, of course, society always slow in catching up compared to how fast the technology cha changes. And then we have our pandemic. And I guess across the world, we have seen more and more telehealth and it has risen. So from these, I guess, decades of uh, being in the zone, uh, what would you consider as the like shift in society's perception about telehealth? 
Well, I'm a, a student of Everett Rogers. I don't know if you either one of you have read his book, uh, Diffusion of Innovations, but there's a lot of fascinating case studies in that book. And there are some examples, I don't remember them off the top of my head, but there are some examples where a an event spearheads an innovation and, and kicks sort of kickstarts it or brings it into high gear. I think as we look back on telehealth and what I call two-channel healthcare delivery, either in the office or virtual. That concept really came alive about two years ago now, or just over two years ago. And it was something that I use as a benchmark because, again, I've been at it almost three decades, is that when I now sit with a patient in the office and I ask them if they want to do their follow-up by telehealth, they all know what I'm talking about. And I used to have to not only explain telehealth, but this and that. And and so, again, as you alluded to, when I started, we were capturing images on these big boxes that were one megapixel, $10,000. There was no network. Hard drive was about 100 megabytes top. So we've come a long way. The things in your pocket, the network, the, the, the capture, everything's right in your pocket, et cetera, et cetera. And now it's so routine for clinicians to share images about patients and for patients to share images and, and for us to do these video calls, not only with doctors, but with our loved ones. The world's a big bit of a different place. We still have a long way to go. Uh, back to my concept of one to many, although it's a great innovation and a great convenience for us to be able to have a video call into the patient's home, it still ties two people up in time. It's not an efficiency gain. And one of the things that's going on in the background of healthcare delivery, at least in the US, I think in all the Western world, probably the whole world, is that the supply of clinicians is not matching the demand for services. But the if statement that follows is if all we can do is see you one-to-one in time. So we have a long way to go. If, if we, we think about putting chat bots on the front end of these conversations to leverage people more, if we think about more remote monitoring, if we think about more use of uh, nurse call centers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, these are ways that we can take care of populations as opposed to individuals, and not to mention the role of AI. There's a big role for AI in all that as well. Talking about the population and also the challenges and adoption and acceptance uh, involved with telemedicine, what would you say is currently in, in the US or the Western world in general, the demographic situation um, regarding the acceptance of telemedicine? Like, are there parts of the demographics that are very nicely represented? Uh, while others are not really accepting it? Or what's your experience with that? Yeah, so someone, I was actually speaking at a conference yesterday on home care and um, someone else on a panel made the point that the people that are aging into Medicare now, that I'm actually 65, I'm not on Medicare, but it's my age group. We've known the iPhone since right 15 years ago now. So we're all very comfortable with these technologies so then you go 10 or 15 years beyond that in the 70 to 80 year old range. Yes, there's certainly a drop off there. But as I alluded to a minute ago, the idea that you can FaceTime your grandchildren, it doesn't take too much of a leap to use the same technology to video call with your doctor. So I think it's getting better and better uh, from a patient perspective. And of course, yes, of course, the millennials, Gen Xers, etc. Those are all people who we call them digital natives, a lot of them. They grew up not knowing any different than texting 
for everything and being on their mobile devices 24 hours a day. So that group is all in. They don't know why we're not going faster in this journey. Um, but I but I think people will, as I as I alluded to, and I saw a nice piece the other day as well from the AARP uh, for, for non-US listeners, that's the Association of Retired Persons here in the US, although they would like to have you be a member after age 50. So it's a little bit of a misnomer. But anyway, they put out a nice brief on adoption in their membership, and it's quite high. So I'm quite bullish on the adoption from the patient perspective. As I said earlier, who wouldn't want to have the service brought to them in their living room? Who wouldn't like that? Well, the answer might be, if you really feel like you need to be face-to-face with that person in a room to have some sort of deep conversation, maybe it's about life and death, maybe if it's about a new cancer diagnosis, things like that could certainly bring you into the office. From the doctor's perspective, there's, well, can I do the right physical exam maneuvers or do I really need to touch the patient? That's sort of a different conversation. But from a patient perspective, in the U.S. anyway, adoption is quite, we're, we're, I think we're ahead of doctors, as, uh, to be honest with you, on the patient side. Mm, that's actually actually quite interesting because it's uh, like, like in, my, uh, in my personal circle of people, I uh, made the experience, especially during the times of uh, COVID pandemic, when uh, people started actually uh, video conferencing with relatives and their private life, that people were often a bit scared of uh, the new technology. I, I mean, especially uh, elderly people who haven't grown up with it. Yeah. Um, so it seems to be a, a nice thing that uh, in telemedicine, it's apparently easier to, to convince people. Well, remember, I'm an optimist. I wouldn't have been at it for three decades if I wasn't. But, I, but, I, but the data <laughs> supports that optimism. So speaking of uh, demographics in the US and, uh, and Europe, let's move to the other part of the world and to global health, basically. What would you say are the challenges and potentials of, um, of telemedicine regarding especially the developing world? Well, I would, it's sort of a two-sided coin, at least two-sided. Maybe there's, there's three or four lenses to look at it. But, but one, two I would name right off the top of my head is on, on the one hand, for a couple of decades now, the developing world has, in the sense of telecom alone, has leapfrogged the developed world because they didn't have the infrastructure of landlines to compete with mobile. So mobile grew up much faster in places like Sub-Saharan Africa and, and India and so forth than it did in the U.S. Maybe similar now, but but that that I think spirit of using new innovation, the traction, the business models that were created that allowed someone for, like for instance, a villager to buy a phone and then resell minutes to other folks in the village, all of those innovations have helped people in the developing world embrace the telecom part of this. The, the flip side is that they're, they're poor people. I, I for many years, uh, oversaw a telemedicine program in uh, Cambodia. And um, we used to send a physician's assistant out into the hinterlands from, from Phnom Penh to visit these quote unquote health centers, which were just concrete shells with no supplies. And he would bring stuff with him. And we we had a routine where he would do a physical exam, take some pictures, maybe do some on-site point of care testing, 
package that all up and send it as an email to us. And we had doctors give them advice. So, you know, we made a little impact, but the fundamentals of public health, the fundamentals of spending money on the population, all of that was not present and still probably isn't in a country like Cambodia. So I don't want to be cavalier and say that telehealth is going to solve the world's problems. But I will say that the spirit of people in the developing world is so entrepreneurial, typically, and so uh, willing to accept anything that will help them move their lives forward, that there's a very kind of robust opportunity for us to do more. And again, I remember projects 15 years ago, there was a project where in South Africa, where they they used, uh, they would take TB swabs in the rural areas and someone would drive them on a motorcycle back to a testing site and then text the results back to the mobile area. That sounds simple, but that's telemedicine and that's a way of moving something forward where you can't transport a doctor all over the country. So I'd say enormous potential. It's still a developing world. They still have enormous challenges, but there's enormous potential for sure. Yeah. I mean, I have to agree on that aspect you are saying, right? That it's not often compared to the amount of money or resources you have to put to build an infrastructure around um, around telehealth versus the number of people it serves. You can't scale an equivalent process simply by training more doctors. First of all, it's significantly more difficult. And secondly, we know from the global trend that trained doctors typically like to stay in the urban areas. They won't go to rural areas. So it's, it's between not giving people the basic access to healthcare or the other equivalent. So that way, I would definitely say, yes, there are needs of resources. But you already mentioned one of the technical parts of telehealth, which is about the networks. And you also mentioned how pervasive the networks, the mobile networks at least has become for many parts of the world. Uh, the other part where the, there is a big impact we are sort of envisioning is if AI comes into the same picture and do some stuff that helps. So can you probably tell us what do you envision are the parts of telehealth where AI would be most beneficial? Well, th- thanks for the question. It's it's such an exciting technology and we may or may not choose to get into this, but but of course a lot of a lot of doctors in particular are afraid of it, which is I think a real shame. So we'll shelve that comment for now. We may or may not come back to it. But any in my mind, I simplify it, and I and I so I'll raise my insight. I don't understand what deep learning really is. I don't really understand what neural networks are. Right? I I know the terms. I've read, read the sentences about what they do, but at a fundamental level, I don't. What I will say is that what I believe is true of all artificial intelligence is take it's taking large, massive data sets and finding patterns, and then using those patterns to predict the future. And to me, I boil it down to that and say, well, our human brains don't do that very well at all. I think there, last time I checked, there were 162 types of cognitive bias that we can bring to any thought process, right? So it's not like we're at all perfect in our cortical thinking. In fact, a lot, a lot of our decisions, as you know, are made brainstem. But anyway, computers can be much more um, 
logical in that way, as long as they're trained with data sets that are that are robust and diverse and so forth. But they never, and I'll, I'll finish the source soapbox here in a moment, but they, they never are going to do judgment. They're never going to be caring. They're never going to have emotional intelligence, but they can guide us. And I think so really the answer to your question after all that preface is anytime that a clinician could use guidance. I think the biggest perhaps opportunity is in remote monitoring, because when you see data coming in from not just the, the wearable devices or the scales or the blood pressure cuffs, but the environment, what the pollution level is or the fog content or what have you, or some other things going on in that person's life. Maybe we have access to data coming from the mobile device about location, about purchasing things. People, of course, would have to opt in for all that. But once you start to crunch all those data, then you can either recommend to the person who's being monitored, if you make this choice, it may affect your health in the following way, or to the person who's monitoring. So I'm, I said earlier that a nurse could monitor in a call center a lot of patients because they're managing by exception. You can probably bring it up a log fold by saying, we're going to let the software call out those people that are at risk for a bad outcome and flag them for you. And you can intervene before they even know they're at risk for a bad outcome. So I think that's the biggest area. But in all, again, in, in, in sort of uh, another area that I love to talk about is digital biomarkers. And I'm uh advisor to an Australian company called ResApp, so just declaring that conflict, but their technology allows them to diagnose respiratory illness based on the sound of your cough. So they can tell pneumonia from asthma, from COPD, from COVID, all based on the sound of your cough. So once again, I picture myself, the kid's got some kind of croup, it's 10 o'clock at night, I get the pediatrician on the video call, they're empowered because they don't have to do a lung exam. Based on the sound of the kid's cough, they can direct care. So I think that's another really potent new area is this idea of using AI to predict based on vocal tone or the other area where that's very prominent is mental health based on the volume of your communications, not the words, but the volume, you can predict if someone's depressed or if their depression is getting better or worse. So those are a few examples, but there's, I'm sure, many, many more. Mm -hmm. So actually, uh, those are also examples, or at least the um, the cough detection, for example, is, is an example where the uh, employment of telemedicine would, uh, would also replace diagnostic devices, right? Like uh, physical hardware devices. Yeah, there's some mix. I mean, I, I often use the analogy when I'm talking about this future of, of a jigsaw puzzle, but may, I'm not sure if, if all the puzzle pieces are there yet, and I, I don't think I can fit them into a nice picture. So whether you use something like a Care device to look into a kid's ear, or whether we're just based on the sound of the cough making a call, the whole The common theme on all of them is allowing the doctor to get more information without bringing you into the office. And so I think we're going to mix and match as we go along. Certain things will have more traction than others. For instance, again, back to the title care, which I have no relationship with them. But I think they're an interesting example. The challenge that I see with a technology like that is getting one in every home so that when you need it, it's there. It's 
seems to me very unwieldy to have to send one out to someone after they have a bad outcome for next time. Wouldn't you rather have it sitting in the closet so that when I have an earache with my, again, my kid has an earache, I can use their device to help the clinician look in the ear in real time. So each one of these has challenges to overcome and the speed of adoption, you know, et cetera. And I think within the next 10 years, getting back to my analogy, the puzzle pieces will fall into place. We'll have an integrated digital first type of experience uh, for for our patients. And um, and again, we'll be able to leverage our clinician workforce across larger populations. Mm -hmm. So what, what would you say are, like you, you mentioned the, the jigsaw uh, puzzle pieces, basically. So what, what would you say are the requirements for telehealth being uh, broadly adopted in healthcare in general? Well, on the patient's consumer side, it has to be easier. It's comparatively easy than when I reminisce about three decades ago, but it's still not easy enough. A certain percentage of telehealth visits divert to voice calls because people can't figure out how to use video or their network isn't right or they don't have the bandwidth or they don't have. So that's, you know, sidebar, but that's a big issue these days in the States is how to get, if we can, universal broadband. We're, we're certainly not there, but that can be a barrier. So it's got to be easier to use and more ubiquitous on the patient side. Again, we're getting close, but as you alluded to earlier, there's some people, particularly in older age groups, that still fumble with it. I was, uh, again, I was at this conference yesterday and walking the floor and someone was using the Amazon Echo show in one of their product sets. And, and again, that's a beautiful thing where you just speak to it and the video call comes up. So we're getting there, but we, we need to, to do better at that. On the clinician side, there's a whole list of things, and it really has to do with clinician comfort with not having someone in front of them. Number one. Number two, at least in the U.S., and I know in, you all are located in Germany. Germany has some of the most forward-thinking or reimbursement strategies for telehealth that I know of and on the planet. So we're still, relatively speaking, fumbling in the U.S., but How we pay for it, what the long-term future of paying for it is also right now holding back adoption. People have had a taste during the pandemic. Health plans paid for everything, including, for instance, voice only. Now they're sort of trying to dial it back. Plans are worried that it's overutilization. No real evidence of that, but they're worried about it. They want to pay less for telehealth. So there's a battle going on about how it will be paid for. And as long as that battle's in place, healthcare providers, that's to say the large-scale healthcare providers, like the place I work at, Mass General Brigham in Boston, will be tiptoeing into these waters because they don't want to make enormous investments in a two-channel system and then not have any revenue. But the clinician part and the quality of care part is things like, do I need to do a physical exam? And some doctors will instinctively say, of course I do. But then if you pressure them and say, well, If I gave you the cardiac echo, how many times do you really need to listen to the heart? As I said earlier, if I could use that, that tool to diagnose your respiratory illness, do you really need to listen to the lungs? How really important is it for you to palpate an abdomen for someone who doesn't have an abdominal complaint? And, and on and on and on. So you, you push on that a little bit and get people thinking, The last thing I'll say is that the majority of adoption at this point in the in the U.S. is behavioral health. And again, because the physical exam is talking to the patient, typically in person, but 
Now you can do it via video. So it's a perfect substitute. So a lot of these things make sense. I don't want to disparage my clinician colleagues because they're being cautious. It's your life. Of course, we should be cautious, but we shouldn't be reflexively, no, no, no. We should really think it through and just think about the whole big picture. I, I have a mitral valve prolapse. And um, when my yearly visit came up during the pandemic, I did not visit the cardiologist. We did it by, I think, a phone or video. But I had my echo, and she was quite able to, to give me my prognosis and so forth based on the echo alone. So lots of examples of that. And, and yet, again, these habits of, well, we bring people into the office because we've always done that. And in the U.S., there's also some, as I said, some financial implications as well. All right. So looking at our time frame, maybe um, I would like to um, to transition to the second part of our session where uh, we are going to talk a bit about what we mentioned earlier, about your role as a uh, head of uh, digital medicine and NPJ. So can you maybe tell us a bit about the articles that you um, emphasize during during the publishing process? Well, th thank you. And thanks for featuring our journal on your podcast. I fell into this role, but I've been incredibly happy with it. My predecessors, uh, Steve Steinhubel and Eric Topol, really started the journal from scratch with my current colleague, Wanda Lehman, who's now the executive editor of all MPJs, but at the time was the managing editor of, of this journal. And I think that the people at, people at Springer Nature would, would all admit that they did not appreciate how much this journal was going to grow and succeed. They have a series called Nature Partner Journals. Don't need to go into what that's all about, except to say that it is an open access platform, whereas a journal like Nature or Nature Medicine, you pay a subscription fee. The way we work is the author pays us on a manuscript processing fee, and then every article is open. Anyone can download it anywhere. And I really like that model. I don't like paywalls in general. So Anyway, that's why it's called an NPJ and not branded as nature. But so I was left with a, a very nice, nothing was broken when I took over. It was going well. But what I had a passion for and still do was this idea that we want to make it more accessible to people who aren't hardcore scientists. And so I've tried to recruit people with policy backgrounds to write some opinion pieces. I've tried to bring in, when, when, when they're submitted, send out for review. It, again, it's got to be high quality. I'll go into that in a minute, but send out papers that are more public health related, et cetera. Always digital medicine, by the way. And again, I'll mention that in a minute again. But so I've tried to steer it in that direction uh, because I know that AI is a big part of your podcast. I will mention that organically, 60, 70% of our submissions are AI related. We never started out to be the AI journal, but just it's become a place where people submit AI work. And we're, we're happy with that. And, and I have two deputy editors who are experts in AI, AI who help me uh, with that, with that uh, stream of, of manuscripts. So the getting back to what we like, and again, I'm so pleased that you asked. I have four criteria when I'm, when I'm looking at it from an editor's perspective. Uh, and different journals do, do things differently. Our, our journal is one where About 50% of what I see come in, I will send a polite reject without review back to the authors based on criteria that I'm going to allude to in a moment. Another 50% will go to an associate editor, and then we have a dialogue. So it's sort of like an editorial team meeting. 
And then some of those also go back to the authors as a reject because the associate editors have deep domain expertise. And for instance, I have a guy who's deep in mental health, so he knows if something's novel or not in that space. So about a quarter of, of the papers go out for review, and then some of those get rejected. But it, once they get to review, it's much higher chance that it's going to get published because we have that heavy screening process. So back to the criteria, the first one is, is it digital medicine? You, you might chuckle at that, but especially in the realm of AI, as, as you both know, now we can literally take off-the-shelf algorithms, find data sets, apply those two, and come up with a new thing. We don't really consider that digital medicine anymore because it's just whatever it might be. It's a clinical problem solved by a common tool. The tool is an innovative. Maybe or maybe not that the insight into that clinical problem is helpful, but we would send that back and say, publish it in a specialty journal, whether it's an ID journal or what have you. That's criteria one. Criteria two, is it novel? That's the most subjective, I'll admit. But if someone comes to me and their cover letter says, this is a follow-on to a study we published last year, you know, hint, hint, that's probably not going to go very far because unless there's something really novel and new about your follow-on, it's typically not going to make it to our review process. And we see that a lot where people, it's just not new stuff. It's B2 research. Nothing wrong with that, but we just don't, we just don't look, look at it. The third, and uh, is it clinically relevant? And that's something that I've really driven and I'm passionate about. I see a lot of stuff that I put at, suggest go into informatics journals or journals like IEEE because it's just it's just too basic for us. We want to make sure that if if we publish it, a clinician can look at the title and the abstract and say, oh, I see how that could apply to my work. Maybe not tomorrow, but at some point. And the fourth criteria is the science solid. And that's really important too. Is it methodologically sound? If you're doing a clinical trial, did you do a good sample size calculation? If you're doing AI, did you use the same data set to train and validate? Well, no, that's not going to fly. So some of that seems straightforward, but when you see what comes in the in-basket, sometimes it's a little surprising. So based on those four criteria, we try to be as objective as possible in reviewing manuscripts. Yeah, that's a really wonderful summary of the criterions and how the uh, actual review process goes through. So I guess one of the things that really resonated is how much of informatics people think is good enough for submission versus what really is the clinical relevance. And I guess, especially for uh, the listeners who are coming from the Mikai Society, where like, which is really a technically focused, yes, we do medical image analysis, image guided surgery, et cetera, but it's very technical. And we often go through that path of, you know, as long as it's a technically new method that is giving you 2% better dice or accuracy. Right. Yeah. Uh, we, we just analyze a lot and publish. It, it's okay in our world, but that does not necessarily mean that would have an obvious clinical impact for magnitude of results. So can you give us an insight of what is the journey that such research projects have to make so that the final product can also be clinically meaningful and can be published potentially in such a journal? 
Sure, I, I do want I, I will answer that, but I want to preface it by saying I was once uh, and still I do submit work to to journals. Mostly it's at these days editorials to my own journal, but I was once in the shoes of doing original research and sending it out for peer review. So I don't want to discourage people from sending us their papers. But it's, it's I'm I'm very uh, honored to work at a high impact journal, fifteen point three impact factor, growing. And when I was young and coming up, we would send to the highest impact journal we thought would look at it. And one other thing that I'm quite proud of is that we turn things around fairly quickly. Our median time to first decision is about 10 days. So if it's not for us, we'll let you know soon and no harm, no foul, right? Because someday you might be the next Nobel laureate. We don't want to turn you away, right? So that's the goal isn't for us to be snobby. It's just to communicate what we think is ideal. And if anyone doesn't want to waste time, then that's okay too. But but it, it's not to, meant to discourage people from sending us work. I think, you know, when you look at it, first of all, if I can't understand the abstract, that's a bad sign. And, and I say that I'm not a trained informatician. I'm not a trained AI researcher. I, I know, again, enough of the concepts to be able to understand it. But if it's so dense and so engineering that I don't really understand it, now that's bad because your readers or our listeners don't know my mind. But just think about a clinician who came up doing mostly clinical research, still an active clinician, very pragmatic individual, and say to yourself, do you think this individual will understand what I'm trying to say? You know, something about scientists sometimes that's interesting is they seem to revel in being smarter than everyone else. And I, again, I understand that, isn't it great to feel like you're a smart person and it, it lifts your spirits and your ego, but if you can't communicate in a way that other people will resonate with it, then it's really not that meaningful. So, if, you know, one other stat that I love, and I, and I might be off by a little bit, but I believe that the average readership of papers publishes about seven downloads or something. It's it, across all journals, right? So, yes, you'll get promoted, you get to become a professor, that's great. But think about, again, the practicality. So that's number one. If it's so dense and if it's so technical that I can't really understand it, that's not a good sign. I think secondly, you know, a lot, most people who write grants will tell you that the first sentence or two of every grant is how they're going to cure cancer if they're successful or whatever it is that they do, right? So give us that context. And then in that context, what is it that you're doing in this particular paper that moves the field forward in a way that has never been done before? And if you can lay that out, we'll probably send it at least to an associate editor and maybe to review. So I think it's a matter of don't take for granted. And again, if it's something that is like 15 other people have done this with blue color and we just did it with green, probably we're not going to look at it. No offense, but that's okay. There's a lot of places to publish your work. And so I hope that's helpful. I mean, I could go on and on. As I said, I know there's some subjectivity in it. I try my best to not have that, but I'm a human being too. No, that's really, I guess, a great summary that, uh, first of all, as you mentioned, that we like to write papers for other technical people who has a certain assumption about things that we know versus do not which is not the case when we are going to a journal, which is more for the general audience. I mean, it 
in right. this case, it's not nature general, but it's still no, focused on clinicians. Yeah. I like to say one of my missions or ambitions for this journal is that in the realm of digital medicine, we should compete with the JAMAs, the New England journals, the Lancets, for your interest as a reader, for your interest as a person submitting your, your, your work. So that's a journey we're on. I, I don't I don't know that we achieve that yet, but that's in that realm. I want to be in that in that conversation. Yeah. And so okay, therefore absolutely. you you want you want your writing to reflect that again, a non-specialist could understand why it's relevant. Absolutely. And I guess you mentioned the other part, which is, I guess, also somewhat uh, resonates with this quite famous state talk from Simon Sinek. It's like, start with why. So yes. basically, contextualize what your innovation is and what you really care about within a bigger question context that uh, like the society yeah, yeah. is currently facing. Exactly. Um, yeah, but I guess these are really important I guess, criterion to choose the particular project you will be doing anyway, right? Because you only have a limited amount of time to do it. So uh, you can either do stuffs that you think, I don't know, make you look smarter or you can do things that that are really uh, important. Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, I think, you know, as researchers, we, we're all curious. That's part of what drives us to do to do science. And so, but but you can get, your level of curiosity can get to the point where you're you're you have blinders on as to what's really relevant. So it's it's a mix. I, I mean, I'm sure all, almost all of the big big pivotal discoveries in the world came from just pure curiosity, and I don't want to to uh, dissuade that. But I also think having some context is helpful. Absolutely. I guess there was one point you mentioned before, and I would somehow connect this to the current question I have is that. Doctors are a little bit afraid about AI and what benefits can it bring. Now, whenever you have a nature, nature partner journal, it carries a certain weight. People, if a paper gets, goes through the peer reviewed in such a journal and gets published, people look at what the opinion or the data that paper is proposing. So do you like from your perspective of editor-in-chief of uh, such a journal, what do you think a publication in such a journal means? Does does it in the longer run changes the perception of those doctors who are currently sort of fearing that AI might take their jobs into thinking AI is just another technical tool that they will be using? Well, we don't have a political agenda. And yet, to to, to repeat, we do want to try to make our work accessible to people who aren't hardcore trained scientists. And sometimes I write editorials about once a month, I, I write with a couple of Harvard medical students, what I call plain old English editorials that really take a paper and just explain it in a way that you don't need really any scientific background to understand. So I, I don't know. I, I think that might be, in other words, pe people, so fear is an emotional thing. I, we're, we're not set up to, to deal with emotional issues. We're set up to deal with logic and that's science is based on reductive reasoning and logic. So I don't know that we can say that we're going to tackle people's fear. I, and a lot of us, especially societies now are like my, my society, American Academy of Dermatology has called it augmented intelligence in a way that maybe that's less intimidating, I don't know, beats me. But so 
there, there are other efforts going on. I, I don't know that the journal can can really tackle that. We just we're sort of trying to be like Walter Cronkite was on the news with just the truth, right? We're just trying to publish good quality science that moves the field forward, and people can interpret it as they like. So, uh, looking at uh, what we have been talking about in summary, I have to say that I really find that those are all very uh, very good approaches. Yeah, it's a, it's a very nice philosophy, actually, starting from digital health being an open access journal, making science accessible, which is something I'm a very big fan of, having been a student myself uh, with limited access to scientific works. Also, the, the idea of yeah, not, not being uh, too, um, let's say, uh, focused on the technical aspects, but also um, keeping the holistic whole picture in mind. Yeah, those are things that I just uh, became a big fan of. So, uh, yeah, looking at the papers that um, you have been publishing and the papers you have seen, uh, the research you have been doing, um, I would come to my final question. What would you say is uh, your vision regarding digital health and telemedicine in general in the next five years? What do you think are the biggest developments right now and how will things transition? Five years is is like a blink of an eye in, in healthcare. So I would love to be hand sweeping and say that we're going to be, I don't know, giving telemedicine from the moon or something in five years. But what I do think in, in the US, a big trend is, is something called virtual first primary care. And the idea that for a lower premium cost, an individual can sign up for a plan that allows them to have a network of doctors, but their first interaction with the system would be virtual. That seems to be taking off. I think that will be well entrenched in five years. That changes how we think about primary care. It changes how we think about referral patterns to specialists. So that's incredibly meaningful. And then the other thing that I'm hopeful of is that we will see some permanent long-term reimbursement strategies for, for telehealth that will enable the provider side of our industry to to really embrace two-channel healthcare delivery. That's really wonderful. So I guess it's always like whenever we talk about AI-ready healthcare, the digital medicine in this podcast, especially with those who are really successful and made an impact, it's always very clear that it's a very complex process (laughs) that needs to bring way too many stakeholders just not the technical people who does some small coding and suddenly things change. And in your description, it also makes perfectly clear that how many uh, different things we have to look into even for simple things to move forward to benefit people. Of course, our listeners also, I'm sure, learned a lot about the publication and publication in high-impact journals beyond the society of our uh, uh, technical people and really going forward into the bigger picture. So I, I I hope that helps them in really choosing the next projects and publishing in, in the next papers or so. On that note, thank you so much for your time, Professor Kevider. It was really, really nice talking to you. A pleasure. And uh, I look forward to uh, continuing to stay in touch. Absolutely. Bye-bye.